on Lumpen Radio. And good morning, everybody. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94, Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. My name is Jamie Trecker. I'm one of the co-hosts of this show. I'm joined, as always, by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Michael Sack. Morning, everybody. And today we are going to be speaking with the author, Nafisa Thompson Spires. She's joining us through the magic of the phone. She is the author of the new book, Heads of the Colored People, a collection of linked short stories. Uh, and we've got her on the phone. Nafisa, are you with us? Nafisa, are you there? Well, we'll try to get Nafisa back here in a moment, but uh, we're going to be talking with uh, her for a second. Uh, Why don't we actually play a quick uh, excerpt from her book, and we'll see if we can get her on the line. This is a reading from uh, Heads of the Colored People. It is backed up this week, as always, by music from uh, the International Anthem Recording Archive. This is Junius Paul. We'll be right back. Paris Larkin was meeting Riley at the convention center after two shifts at her part-time job for Dark Shadows Hollywood Cemetery Tours. Her official job description said, Tour narration, vocal talent, must be able to memorize stories and stand for long periods of time on moving bus while engaging audiences. I ain't saying she a gravedigger, Riley liked to begin when he introduced her as his girlfriend, but she really, she digs graves, like, loves them. It was one of the things that had attracted him to her when they first met, her dark cheeriness and her non-judgmental approach to his lifestyle. And his soft landing punchlines were one of the things Paris liked about him, and his interesting face, and the way he wasn't at all who she expected him to be. When he took his contact lenses out at night and tied his hair down with a do-rag, Riley looked just as comfortable and kind as when he dressed up and hung out at his favorite comic cafe in Pasadena, drinking boba tea and playing chess with the kids from Caltech, where he studied engineering and was one of a handful of black students on campus. If Paris could have a superpower, it would be to make herself visible, because even though she stood at the front of the bus with a microphone pointing out alleged sightings of Marilyn Monroe to hungry tourists with camera phones and fake Gucci sunglasses, she wasn't the main attraction. And she preferred to narrate the tours with reverence instead of theatrics, to fade into the background and let the spirits speak for themselves. With Riley, she could be seen, since they got a decent amount of attention when they were together, and especially when they dressed up. Certain cosplay purists, read racists, did not always approve of Paris or Riley's respective costume choices or the idea of black people dressed as non-black characters. Paris had come to anticipate and almost enjoy the surge of anxiety that came with entering these spaces, had felt her flight-or-fight instinct the closest thing to being fully alive. And the ghost tours, too made her think that by comparison, she was at least more alive than the bodies that filled those holes. That day was not her day off, so she took the metro and two buses to meet Riley at the convention center after work. After showering and changing into her long silver wig and meticulously sewn necromancer dress, her dark skin contrasting with the purple and white pinstripes of the dress, the gray armor on her legs and arms elevating her mood. She had debated dressing as Haruhi Fujioka, the counterpart to Riley's costume from Aoran High School Host Club, but her choice of Euclidewood Hellsythe created a bigger impact, she thought. Though she kept her blue contacts down and focused on her sketchbook, her eyelids adorned with heavy black and white shadow warned other transit passengers to dare her that day. 
And welcome back. That was a reading from Nafisa Thompson Spire's book, Heads of the Colored People, performed again by Genius Paul and Shannon Van Vold. Nafisa, are you with us? I am. All right. How are you doing this morning? I'm all right. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. That was a reading actually from the first story in your new collection. Uh, Could you just give us a little introduction for people who actually don't have the book in front of them uh, to tell us a little bit about what your your newest novel is about? Yeah. Um, my collection deals with contemporary black life, mostly from around 1991 to the present, and um, particularly middle-class black people. So there are lots of nerds, lots of people who are the only one in a space or one of the only black people in a, a space, and they're all trying to navigate those things um, and keep their heads intact at the same time. Nafisa, I wanted to get into a little bit um, the title of your collection um, was uh, inspired by the Heads of the Color People, written by James McCune Smith. Um, he was a physician, um, an early abolitionist, and he also was one of the, uh, I, I suppose, purveyors of combating the pseudoscientific uh, theories of black inferiority. And I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. I, I know he wrote these sketches. He wrote for the Frederick Douglass. Um, I believe, was it a journal or a newspaper? I, I I think it was the Frederick Douglass papers. I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it off the top of my head. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm not sure if it was a weekly or... But there was a, there was a black uh, literary movement in the 1800s. And can you talk to us a little bit about um, your inspiration for the book based on these writings? Yeah, um, the writings were introduced to me by a scholar named Derek Spires, who happens to be my husband. And he was always talking about um, how... The work that James McCune Smith and a lot of his contemporaneous writers like Francis Ellen Watkins Harper and William Wilson and Frederick Douglass were making these arguments about what it meant to be a black person um, and what it would mean for a black person to have the full rights of citizenship under the law. And so many things are not different than what we're dealing with today. I mean, they are different. We've had a black president. We've had the civil rights movement. But they also aren't different. And so it was intriguing to me to hear him speak about all of these things from the 19th century um, that seem to be so parallel to issues that we're always still talking about. And this, this there was a, uh, Frederick Douglass had a, a, a newspaper, um, was it, a, or in a magazine, correct? Yeah, it was, an, it was a newspaper. He had multiple papers over time. So McCune Smith was publishing basically these columns that were then later um, anthologized as, as the books, The Heads of the Colored People. But they would have been serial um, segments back then. Now, I was wondering if you'd read any of these. I, I know he wrote about African Americans, also uh, mixed race folks, and a, a handful of white people, too. Um, did you read any of these sketches, and can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, I read a lot of them for research, not just his sketches, but, again, some of the contemporaneous writers. Um, and they range from really sort of banal everyday life situations, um, domestic plots about husband and wife, to like more macabre things. One of the ones that stands out to me the most is about a newspaper vendor, a black newspaper vendor, who is missing two legs, he's a double amputee, and he sells the newspapers from his knees. Um, and there are lots of other sketches that are just about um, everyday black life and what it means to be black and sort of middle class 
And that's the other thing that intrigued me about them was um, I hadn't felt like I'd read a lot of black middle-class literature, and um, especially not contemporary black middle-class literature. So the fact that McCune Smith was doing this at this time period in the 19th century um, was very interesting to me. You know, we're, we're talking about the inspiration for the title of the collection of stories, but um, one of the things that surprised me about <coughs> your book, Nafisa, is that there's a bibliography in the back. You usually don't see that with fiction. I think the only other author I can think of who does that is William Volman. Um, and uh, I, that was intriguing to me. I was wondering if that was your decision or the publisher's or a joint decision and, and why. It was kind of my decision. I wanted the book to be in conversation with as much literature as possible. I'm really into literary allusions and yeah, references and intertextuality. And some of the references I was making were a little bit too obscure for some of my editors. I had three editors. And at first we thought about, in addition to the author's note, doing like an almost encyclopedic set of entries where we explain things. But I decided in the end that it was better to just leave a trail for other researchers so the bibliography seems like a good way to do that. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I love that. I'm a librarian. I love that, too. And going back to your um, what you mentioned about uh, black middle class literature, I mean, the only people I can think of off the top of my head is Percival Everett, who often writes from the perspective of uh, cowboys, black cowboys, and also professors, and then uh, Pulp Beatty. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, again, I'm a librarian. You know, most of the literature is, well, we, you know, we had, we very popular in Chicago. We have the urban or street lit, um, which deals, you know, which is kind of a, like the uh, afterwards of Donald Goins, you know, just the, it's like the hustling and, and things like that. And then you have, um, you know, a lot of books about people growing up in poverty or excessively wealthy, but we don't really have a middle class. And, we talk about middle class literature a lot on the show, and and I'm I'm glad that you're taking that on. It was a, a fresh, and I also have to say it was hilarious. I mean, the some of the characters <laughs> in the book were just were, were killing me. So. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I wanted to actually ask you: had, had you read Fran Ross before uh, writing this book? It's funny. I um, hadn't read Fran Ross. My friend Leah gave me Oreo years ago, I was reading Baratunde Thurston's How to Be Black, mm-hmm. and she was like, you need to read this book, Oreo, and I, I said I would, and I put it on my bookshelf and promptly forgot about it, and then I went to Ten House, and Matt Johnson, who's one of my favorite writers, was my workshop leader, and when he read another project I'm working on, a novel that will be my next book, he was like, you need to read Fran Ross, so I still haven't read Fran Ross, but apparently we've done some similar work and have similar voices. Right. For those people that don't know Fran Ross, she was um, a one-time joke writer for um, um, Richard, Pryor. Richard Pryor. Excuse me. Yeah. So it's been a long day here already. It's only eleven o'clock. Uh, she wrote a, a one-off novel called Oreo, which is a retelling of uh, the Theseus myth from Greek mythology, where her character goes through various parts of New York City. But it is an unusual and humorous uh, tale of middle-class black life that's told in 1974. But it's it's satirical and uh, uh, also pretty loopy uh, but some of the humor in your book and I, I think our, hopefully our listeners caught on to that uh, from our first reading again which came from the, the title story in your collection uh, I really enjoyed the fact that uh, you had a number of very funny and amusing asides you're talking about people you talk about their 
what's going on in their heads. But there was a lot of kind of pointed commentary that was going along with that, along with the uh, their decisions and their choices. There was some cultural criticism of that. And I wonder if you could talk about how humor uh, shapes what you're trying to write and, and what you try to get across with, you know, some of the jokes in this book, which are, as Jeremy mentioned, very funny. Yeah, the humor for me is kind of a defense mechanism in everyday life. And in my writing, I think it operates the same way. I'm using a lot of the jokes or the, the one-liners, the satirical form, to kind of disarm readers. Um, and as a way of approaching content that's actually quite dark, so... I mean, the book is framed by these two stories about police brutality, and the one that we just heard the excerpt from, Heads of the Colored People, is um, laced with a lot of humor, even though it's about this really awful event that's happening. Um, and most of the stories use that same approach in, in some way or another. And it's partly, again, because the content is so dark, it was a way for me to address it without being overwhelmed by it. I would like to talk about Randolph and Isabella. Now, um, that's uh, that story uh, made me laugh so hard several times, um, particularly when he was um, uh, raiding or trail mix. Um, he uh, can you give a little background on the story? Yes, of course. It's about um, two office mates, Randolph, and for the first time in his life, he's able to be known as Randy. They're professors, correct? Yeah, they both work at a college, and (laughs) he has migraines, and so he um, likes to have the lights off, and Isabella is his new office mate, and she does not like that, and so they kind of have this little office war going on, which include him fantasizing about um, rubbing his testicles on her things, as he's seen um, (laughs) on a reality show, Um, and one of your lines is, Randolph wasn't ready to put his balls out over this, nor did he like the way they could implicate him in a possible misreading of the situation. But he thought about it. And then what he did in turn is he, he crunched up her uh, trail mix nuts with his fingers, leaving you know indentations. <laughs> and then she returned, puts the book Microaggressions um, on his desk. And so... You know, this story is 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 not is a little more lighthearted than some of the other ones, and and I was wondering, um, you know, the first story that we heard from, you know, ends in a shooting, um, and this one is more of like, I don't know, I, I don't want to say it's lighthearted because it, it they're, it's psychological. It's yeah, it's psychological. They're, they're, Isabella kind of is nasty as we find out at the conclusion, but how did you, you know, this it, this reminds me of like a. I, for some reason, Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross kept popping into my head. I don't know why. Um, just just kind of nasty working people doing things to each other. Um, how did you decide to do something that was more on the funny side and less on the dark side, kind of in the, in the not kind of, but uh, in, in the collection? I'd actually written um, that story before I wrote the titular story, Heads of the Colored People, and it was more in keeping with the kind of work I wanted to do. That story, I would say, is more representative of the collection I thought I was writing. But these other subjects kept calling out to me. So that's part of why the police brutality is, is so vivid in the book. But I'm really interested in passive aggression, and particularly in the workplace. It's, and for professors, I mean, you add this extra layer of being a black professor or a black academic, and what it means to constantly feel like you're under surveillance or that any little move could be misread and potentially ruin your reputation. And it was 
interesting to me to make Randolph a male character. Initially in that story, it was two women dealing with the same situation in this office space. But there was something extra that came with him being male and working with a woman and being worried about how things would be perceived with a woman um, that I think made it funnier in the end. There's a, there's a lot of that in this collection of people of uh, interpersonal miscommunication. And um, the more I thought about it and the further I got into the stories, I wondered if you had feelings like that about how the book might per- be perceived by readers at large. Because I think in the beginning, I was expecting it to be, even before I started reading, I was expecting the stories to be kind of allegorical and to speak on society at large. Um, especially with some of the topics it takes on. But the further I got into it, and I, it was it was a very specific place that I, I had this thought. It was page 150. It was in the middle of Marjorie's story. Marjorie is a character that's, that's dealing with um, anger problems. And she, uh, she makes an excuse for herself. So Marjorie is in line at the DMV, and she's really aggravated with having to wait and the way that uh, the people at the counter are handling the situation, and she's going over her past in her head while she's waiting and the mistakes she's made and why she might be so angry, and she constantly makes excuses for herself and while blaming others. You do a really good job in all the stories with the psychology of self-deception, and for me... The stories were, were more about, it was more of a psychological read, how, how the mind works in, in deceiving itself. And I wondered if you think of your stories in a specific way and um, maybe get frustrated by the way certain readers interpret them, or it's just however any reader interprets it is okay with you. I think um, with all art, there's this potential for people interpreting it very differently than what you might intend as the writer or the artist. Um, And that's something that I'm probably overly aware of because I started out as a literary critic. And so I've been on the other side of, you know, scouring somebody's work for any little thing and making arguments about what it's doing, whether that's what the author intended or not. So I definitely think that way even while I'm writing. Um, but I wasn't necessarily setting out to write about characters who um, are the reason for their own problems, like Marjorie and Randolph are. But I do think there is a potential for people to make arguments about blackness and black people that are totally against what I'm trying to do in the book, and that they could use things as evidence for those negative arguments. And so I've had two incidents where that happened, where I read the story Belle Lettre, to the crowd Hilarious. and a white man tried to talk to me about reverse racism that he found an argument in it basically for reverse racism and I'm like no 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 that's definitely not what's happening here so and I wrote an article for LitHub about this what if writers are getting what if readers are getting the wrong lessons from what I'm writing about so it's definitely a potential problem but it's also completely out of my control I've always been one to you know the when people look at pieces of I, I don't like I, I do with writers, but uh, art in general, you know, visual arts, I don't like to have it explained to me. Um, I don't like to hear directors' visions about movies. Um, I, I, for some reason with literature, it's it's different. Um, but I, I think the important thing, be, uh, one of the things that I was curious about is, you know, when someone, you know, is talking about reverse racism or and they interpret your 
works wrong? Is it upsetting to you? Or are you just like everybody's difference and this is how we're going to look at it? It totally depends on the interpretation. Reverse racism is kind of an odious argument to me, so that's offensive. Um, but if someone just sort of sees a character differently, um, like if someone thinks Marjorie makes too many excuses for herself and that's why she's in the situation she's in, that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, she's a person and everyone has different perceptions of people and their behaviors. And I think that means that the character is drawn in a somewhat com- complex enough way that there are multiple readings allowed for her. But again, if they're trying to use the word to make racist arguments or negative arguments about black people, then that's a totally different thing. Yeah, that that's completely understandable. And, and you know, the critics on this show understand that reverse racism is a made-up concept. So I, I uh, at least I'm speaking for everyone here, but I think we can all agree on that. Um, yeah. Jamie, did you have? Well, it's made up to excuse actual racism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. um, actually, I did want to uh, go to another uh, uh, reading from your book, um, actually, because this is you've got a story about two young women who are friends who then fall apart over, uh, well, I mean, basically racism. Fatima, uh, the Biliquist, a transformation story, was a really interesting and powerful story to me because, again, it's about two young women, one girl who uh, I guess is not comfortable in her skin, and she gets into a relationship with a boy, um, and then her relationship with the person that had been her best friend up to that point falls apart. So we have a little excerpt from this, and then we'll come back and, and we'll talk about it quickly. Uh, you are listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. If only Baratunde Thurston had been writing when Fatima came of age, she could have learned how to be black from a book instead of from Violet's charm school. Even a quick glance at Ralph Ellison could have saved her a lot of trouble, but she wasn't ready for that, caught up as she was in the dramas of Arthur Mervyn and Carwin the Billiquist and all of them. With Violet's help, Fatima absorbed the socio-cultural knowledge she missed, not through osmosis or through more relevant literature, but through committed, structured, ethnographical study. She immersed herself in slang as rigorously as she would later immerse herself in Spanish for her foreign language exam in grad school. She pored over Vibe magazine and watched Yo! MTV raps and the Parkers, trying to work her mouth around phrases with the same intonation that Countess Vaughn used, a sort of combination of a Jersey accent and a speech impediment. When she couldn't get into those texts, she encouraged herself with old episodes of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that played in constant early morning and late night rotation, feeling assured that if Ashley Banks could, after five seasons, become almost as cool as Will, then she could too. Her new turns of phrase fit her about as awkwardly as the puffy powder blue fubu jacket she found in a thrift store in downtown Rialto. Still, she was happy when Violet looked approvingly at it. Hail Violet became the arbiter of Fatima's blackness, the purveyor of all things authentic. Though she was five feet eight and chunky by most standards, nearly obese by Fatima's, You would think Violet, judging by the way she walked, was Pamela Anderson, like a hula doll on a dashboard swinging hips and breasts. The distance between their respective houses was 15 minutes, but only seven if they met halfway. Fatima borrowing her father's extra car, the 1993 Beamer, so as not to look ostentatious, and Violet getting a ride from one of her brothers or occasionally driving her mother's old Taurus. They never met at each other's houses, 
lest Fatima's upper-middle-class opulence embarrass Violet, and because there was no space for Violet to carve out for herself at her house. Violet made Fatima study a guide of the top ten black expressions for rating attractive men, and they practiced the pronunciations together. The pinnacle of hotness, according to Violet, was either dangfoin, hellafoin, or bout it bout it, as in ooh, he bout it bout it. This phrase especially required the Countess Vaughn intonation and often included spontaneous bouts of raising the roof. During their tutoring sessions, Fatima stifled her joke about the rain in Spain falling mostly on the plains and practice on, assured that Violet's instruction would confer upon her, like Carwin, a wonderful gift of bilicalism. Glossaries soon followed in which Violet broke down slang that had previously mystified Fatima. She couldn't wait to replace her traditional for sure with for show in real conversations, but she took issue with some of Violet's recommendations, especially gangsta, which Violet explained as terms of endearment. So basically, Fatima summarized, ventriloquizing Ashley Banks again, you want me to turn good things into bad things and vice versa. Violet said, mostly. Fatima tried pumping her shoulders in a brief bankhead bounce, but it was obvious she lacked the follow-through and wasn't ready for dancing. And it was almost like any romantic comedy in which the sassy black person moves in with the white people and teaches them how to live their lives in color and puts some bass in their voices. Only Steve Martin wasn't in it, and no one was a maid or a butler or a nanny. And the romance was between two girls, and it was platonic, and they were both black this time, but one didn't look like it, and one didn't sound like it, at least not consistently. And we're back. That was a reading again from Nafisa Thompson Spires, Heads of the Colored People. Nafisa, could you tell us a little bit about that story? Was it based on any kind of personal experience of yours or, or people that you knew? Because it seemed very realistic and, and uh, affecting to me. Yeah. Um, Fatima is a bioquist, and I do pronounce her name Fatima for reasons that come up in my next project, which is a novel about her. Um, that story is maybe one of the ones that's closest to my own high school experiences, and even before that, middle and elementary school. I did go to a predominantly white private school, and I had trouble code switching when I was around black people because I didn't really understand why I needed to speak differently. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about what it would mean for this person who looks white in some ways, this woman living with albinism, Violet, to teach a person who looks black um, how to be more authentically black and sort of the ironies of all of that. Um, and that's not just a device for humor, but I do think that there's something interesting about the ways bodies and voices and other sort of markers get read racially, um, and that those were two characters I could explore that through. Fatima shows up in a couple other stories, and, and that happens with a few other characters in, in your collection. Did It made me wonder if, if, if any of this started off as, as a cohesive novel or if characters are going to be carried over into um, your other works. I do have plans to carry them over into other works. So my novel in progress, which is under contract with my same publishers for the collection, Congratulations. Um, is, oh, thanks. It is about Fatima um, in her mid-30s dealing with the illness that comes up in one of my other stories, um, the body's defense against itself. She's living with endometriosis and the way it's sort of ravaged her whole life in this novel. But in the collection, I thought it was interesting to make characters 
sort of reappear, and particularly um, with this Todd, to give them their own voice and perspective. So in the story of this Todd, there's this really horrible girl who's fetishizing men with disabilities, and I thought it was important for one of the men, at least one of the men, to get to speak from his own perspective about what he's doing and not just leave hers there. So for some reason, sometimes it was just to kind of round out the angles that I was um, telling the stories from, and in other cases it was fun to make characters pop up in other places. We're speaking with the author, Nafisa Thompson-Spire. She is the author of Heads of the Colored People, a new collection of short stories. We'd like to take a quick break for underwriting, but we'll be back in a couple minutes. You are listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. At a quarter to five, she put on her headset with a 3D microphone and called Dom. Hey, sorry, I was finishing something up his torso said. Hey, Raina said too loudly before correcting herself. Hey, she half whispered, half spoke. Don preferred her on-screen persona, no head, and she tolerated his request for faceless chatting, though she occasionally got glimpses of his neck or the faint dark scruff on his pale, almost translucent chin. What did you think? Hmm. It was good, Dom said after hesitation. The story part, Rapunzel was a nice choice, but if you're going to do something like that, I think you should sew more of your hair next time. Reyna was trying to transition her hair from relaxed to natural, though she kept it flat ironed in most of her videos. She tried scrunching the burned straight ends to blend them in with the three to four inches of ingrowing coils and kinks at her hairline, but that made her hair only chin length instead of shoulder length, and Dom speculated that her views decreased when her hair was not in the frame or the thumbnail preview for the video. They had met, really, started chatting, first through text and then on camera, after he commented on a few of her videos. She only had 57 subscribers then, but with Dom's suggestions, little things like telling stories on camera or changing the video tags, she had grown her brand to over 20,000 subscribers in a little over five months, even making some advertising revenue. Okay, more hair, Raina whispered. Anything else? Meh. I like the whole fairy tale theme. I think more videos like that, especially if you dressed up. Like a corset? Yeah, something like that. She thought she heard Dom chewing something. I'll think about it, Raina said, her mind already working out the details of her mother's reproof. Costumes were especially offensive to Carmen and more evidence of impropriety or kink, not simply role-playing or fantasy. In her regular voice, Raina said, Dom, have you thought about what I said about the next level? Dom shifted in his chair, his white hands fluttering towards the top of the screen and out of the frame, probably running through his hair. He was definitely chewing. I think... I just think it might change things, like... too much, he said after a long pause. I like things the way they are now. I'd do two, Raina said slowly, back in her gentle whisper voice. But if you're really my boyfriend, it would make more sense to actually see each other, or at least more of each other. I'll think about it, he said. My dad's texting me, gotta go, I'll call or something tonight. Raina didn't hear his phone buzzing, but she said bye. 
And welcome back. That was a reading from the author Nafisa Thompson Spires' book, Heads of the Colored People. You are listening, of course, to I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. Nafisa, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about that story. I, I chose that one um, for personal reasons. Uh, you probably don't know this, but our radio station actually airs uh, morning ASMR updates. We do a little segment for about four minutes with, with a reader uh, every morning at 7.20. Um, and I felt this was an unusual, this is a very unusual niche thing, ASMR recordings and stuff like that. How did you get interested in this and, and why did you write a story about it? ASMR is so strange. Yeah. Um, it, I discovered it discovered it, um, found a term for what I'd been experiencing my whole life, the, the sensory experience of um, certain sounds creating tingles or goosebumps. Um, when I was searching for a yoga nidra video, I used to do these yoga nidra tracks, and I was searching for one on YouTube, and I did, in the comments for it, someone said, oh, this person would do a good job with ASMR, so I looked up the term, and I started looking up more videos, and I just thought it was such a strange but kind of cool um, concepts that people are, for various reasons, whispering and tapping and using instruments on the um, videos to try to create feelings for other people who are listening to them. Right. For, for people who don't know what ASMR is... I do uh, not. So it's, it is a... Uh, it is an extremely niche series of videos and sounds where people speak in whispers and uh, brush their hair, uh, they listen to cats uh, drinking milk. It is supposed <laughs> to make people's skin tingle, but it's, it's usually um, the, the videos, most of them are used as sleep aids for people. Uh, there's, there's some data that YouTube sees the biggest spike um, around 10.30 at night uh, in local areas, people watching these videos. They're almost always done by young women. Uh, the person that does the, them on our show is uh, a woman named Mystic Rain. She used to be called Vanilla Whispers. But then she found out a person with fewer followers had that name. Uh, <laughs> Vanilla Whispers. Uh, so we, we I don't want to... she's caused any car accidents at 720. Uh, at 720? I don't know. We put people to sleep? I don't know. You know, I think my weather reports do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this was an interesting uh, an interesting story, and, you know, we're, we're getting a little too much into the weeds on what ASMR is, but, but Nafisa, I, what I thought was very interesting was this is a story of a, of a young girl looking to find herself. She's, she's obviously in an unsatisfying relationship from, from You Got That. But it's also a story about parental disapproval. Her, her mom uh, and dad are not exactly thrilled that she's making YouTube videos that show off uh, her cleavage and other stuff. Uh, and they think it's kind of strange and don't understand it. Could you, could you talk a little bit about what you were trying to get at in that story for our listeners? I was interested in multiple levels of someone um, being more of a body than a full person. And I think a lot of the stories are interested in that. But Raina, Raina's head is literally not in the videos. People don't see her face a lot of the time, um, except for in the thumbnail previews. And she has this boyfriend who only wants to chat with her as though they are on a YouTube video. So he doesn't want her head in the frame when they're using FaceTime or Skype or whatever. And then her mother is constantly critical of her body. And it's sort of like she only exists, I think there's a phrase, something like she's flesh to everyone, mm -hmm. nothing more than flesh. And um, I thought that was an interesting idea that, you know, this is a, a fully rounded person and yet her physical appearance is the only thing that seems to matter. And what she can do for people with that physical appearance. So for her mother, it's make a good impression for her boyfriend, it's to give him this sensation of ASMR. It's all about image and outward appearance and not the person. 
And so I wanted to think about that through multiple levels with the story. In that story, Reina addresses her mother by her first name, right? She addresses her mother as Carmen? Kind of. The or the narrator does from yeah. from her point of view. And that, that happens in the, the story that Jeremy's going to want to talk about in a second, that the parents <clears throat> want their child to address them by their first names. That as That's such a foreign, bizarre concept to me. Is, was that common with you growing up? No, not at all. Okay. Um, I think, I don't think that it's that Raina's necessarily addressing her mother that way. Okay. Um, to be disrespectful, I think it's that the narrator um, just gets into her vocalization that way. But in the other story, I think you're referring to the subject of consumption. Um, yeah, the fruitarians. <laughs> yeah, that story is it's intentional. They want their daughter to um, refer to her by their first name. And, and that's just a very strange family who has a lot of interesting viewpoints. Um, I don't want to spoil too much, but I'm sure. happy to talk about what's going on there. Well, yeah, we will definitely talk about that in a second. I did want to also point out there's there's one thing we did not mention in the in the story that we're just discussing here. Her her father and her mother also want her to be in these ads for for cars. They do a family they do a family ad. Uh, what is it every six months where they appear and it's uh, yeah it's it's uh, even though they're divorced even though they're divorced it's presumed to be a rather cheesy local car commercial as well. So there's there's another layer to that uh, as well. But yeah, the story about the the fruitarians and the um, the husband and the young child. I don't want to spoil the story, but let's say it's it's not going to end well. That is also all about image because it's a it's a story about um, in some ways about a producer that's coming in that's going to make a documentary, a reality TV show about this family. And I one of the things I did want to say, uh, Nafisa, is you referenced they shoot horses, don't they, by Horace McCoy, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Oh, yeah. I, they also made a movie uh, about it with Jane Fonda, which was about the. I believe it was it was was that the depression when they did the dancing or World War II? I thought it was the depression. It is the depression. They used to have these contests where they would basically the last dancers standing um, marathon dances. Yes, marathon dances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. what they were called. Mm-hmm. And and you were you get inside this woman's head during the dance. And I, I I've never seen that book referenced anywhere else. So I was really excited because I love that story and I love the movie oh. too. Um, <laughs> but the other thing. Um, this <laughs> the the character of Elizabeth, you know, um all of us on the show are are we're left but we're also we like we like sports and we eat meat and things like that and it, all of us know a woman like Elizabeth um she's uh uh extreme she's an extreme liberal i guess would be the best way to put it uh well, she's, she's extreme, I, I think, is actually... I don't know if yeah, there's any she, politics. She changes it up yeah, here and there. She, she's definitely... But, but, but always to the max. But it's definitely ecological. You know, she doesn't want to use any unnatural fibers. Yeah. Um, and the husband... Um, Those are things associated with the left, but not necessarily... I wouldn't necessarily... My take on it, at least, and maybe, Nafisa, you could you could interject here, but I don't I don't look at it as a political thing. I look at it more as a control thing. Yeah. Yeah, what well, yeah, it seems like she was I would bet a thousand dollars she's a liberal. Like an extreme liberal. Nafisa, is she or not? <laughs> uh I do think that she is probably an extreme liberal, um, in the negative sense that, you know, she has a whole lot of blind spots when it comes to race and many other social constructs. And and reality. Um, yeah, exactly. you know, that's what I they sometimes and this is what it reminds me, like I said, we're all we're all leftists. I wouldn't say we're extreme liberals, but you know, there's kind of this la la land, 
you know, uh, where people say things like, I don't see color, I'm colorblind. And, you know, she is married to an African-American man, but she also, you know, seems very uh, distanced from reality. Um, and the premise of the story, and I don't want to ruin it or anything, but they're doing a reality show and they're kind of realizing that she's not that interesting real person. So then she was like, well, let's let's do polyamory. Let's do polyamory. Let's get these, you know, I'll get my get new lover over here. here. Um, and then they also had a uh, detachment parenting blog and... The, and this is where, you know, I, I, I thought about the politics because um, we're, we're in Chicago and we have what I, I call uh, progressive parents, which basically means they let their kids do whatever they want. Um, I've had, you know, children run up and grab a fork off my table at a restaurant and things like that. And it's uh, I, and uh, it's it drives me crazy. It's annoying. Yeah, it's so horrible. It's like, just get your kids under control. Um, but I, I, I was laughing so hard, um, and they were talking about <laughs> the, the different, um, the different uh, chapters of the blog. Uh, I'm just going to read the, the chronological order of the, some of the installments that you had on page 97. October 19th, breastfeeding, a lot like cannibalism? No. October 26th, breastfeeding part two, baby vampirism. Or vampirism, I'm not sure you say that. Let them suck the light out, life out of it if you want. November 2nd, elimination anticipation. November 9th, solutions for accidental elimination. November 16th, cold bath, no colic. Um, and then you have <laughs> the resources where you could buy tiny underwear made specially for children age one, imported infant toilet seats, colorless handmade wooden toys, and links to our fruitarian lifestyle pages and family vlogs, respectively. And I, I just got such a big kick out of the story. And then, um, you know, Ryan's Rebellion, which I don't want to ruin the end of it for people. But I, I was probably that's the hardest I've laughed reading a book in a really long time. And I, I thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I love humor and writing. Um, you deal with extraordinarily difficult subject matter. Um, One of the things I really liked is that there are a lot of unlikable characters oh yeah, in absolutely. these stories, but they're they're compelling. You know, I, I enjoyed reading the unlikable characters, and not because you know I could uh, condescend to them, but because I could relate to them. Yeah, I was absolutely rooting for Ryan the whole time. I'm like, yeah, do it, do it, you know. And uh, it's for me, and uh, I, I'm not a I'm not a short story person. I I, I prefer novels, but. I, I really got engaged by his character and I was rooting for him. And, and when you can uh, detach yourself when you're reading like that and become part of the story, uh, I, I think that's uh, something to receive accolades for. And I was, I was, uh, I was really enthused when I was uh, knocking that one out. So. Nafisa, can you give us some more details on your, on your forthcoming novel? We have to wrap it up here because we're almost out of time. But tell us if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you've got coming up next. This novel is presently titled Our Lady of Fatima, and it's dealing with lots of the same issues that are in the collection, um, bodily dysfunction, middle-class values, and relationships past progression. So Fatima is now in her mid to late 30s, and endometriosis has kind of wrecked her body. She's had multiple surgeries. She's had a miscarriage recently. And her biological father, who's referenced in the collection in Balwetra, but not present, He's Cameroonian, and he's never been in her life, but he's decided he wants to suddenly have a relationship with her because he thinks she's sicker than she is. 
Um, and at the same time, her sister has also announced that she's pregnant, even though Fatima's just had a miscarriage, in a very insensitive way. And so those are sort of the inciting incidents that lead her on this very strange journey um, where she kind of gets into uh, an addiction to self-flagellation. So she starts wearing first these belly binders that are common after pregnancy, but then she also starts wearing steel-boned traditional corsets and gets really caught up in um, multiple women's wellness groups that are kind of promising her they can make her whole. So the first one is called Daughters of the African American Revolution, and she it's this seemingly Afrocentric group, but it ends up um, that Fatima isn't right for the group and gets kicked out of it. And then she gets into this Victorianist cosplay group where they are wearing the corsets. She doesn't have to hide her corsets anymore, but they're mostly white women, and they're thinking about history in some really problematic ways thinking about blackness in some problematic ways. So Fatima has to decide between continuing on this path of kind of self-harm through her engagement with her body and these other people and her father or something like self-acceptance over the art of the novel. Great. We've been speaking today with Nafisa Thompson Spire. She is the author of Heads of the Colored People. It is out now from 37 Inc. Press. Uh, we will next be at Pills and Community Books, speaking with Megrin Steelstra. And that is... 21st. Uh, 21st, excuse me. Not this coming week, but the next. That is, of course, live on Thursday. From all of us here at I-94, I want to say thank you for listening. Thanks, Nafisa. Nafisa, thank, thank you, so, you much. so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll be back uh, in a week. See you then. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the book Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spires out now from the Simon & Schuster imprint 37 Inc. This episode originally aired on June 10, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.